So the uh, title of the talk tonight is The Blade and the Bell. And we'll be exploring um, insight and wisdom and how those two go together. And really how insight develops into wisdom and how they work together to liberate us. The two words in Pali that I'm referring to when I say insight and wisdom are vija and panya. And um, uh, these two words, vija and panya, um, in Pali later become vajra and prajna, if you've uh, studied any of the Mahayana texts. <clears throat> and so they, there's a, they, they play a very prominent role in the later literature. Um, but they're not necessarily drawn out uh, so, so full in the Pali literature. They're there, but they take on this very strong um, imagery and um, prominence, so much so that the Tibetan teachings, uh, the Tibetan school is called the Vajrayana, or the path of uh, wisdom, or the path of insight. And it's a sort of a profound insight. It's a sort of a dawning of a new understanding that dispels ignorance. And the symbol for the Vajra is um, sometimes a blade, and sometimes they call it the lightning bolt. But it's sort of a, it's a penetrating mind, a mind that can see through old confusions and come up with a new understanding. And that moment that your mind is in that revelation, it has this Vija or Vajra, And then it takes time for that insight to mature, that insight to kind of trickle down through our belief systems, through the way that we uh, understand the world. And that's really the time it takes to ripen into wisdom. It's not automatic. Um, You might have a very profound insight into uh, really anything. Um, The forgiveness you want to offer your family or into the nature of impermanence, or into the, um, uh, the, the incredible importance of the Brahma Viharas and love. And in the moment that that revelation sort of opens in you, um, that's this quality of vija, that's this quality of insight. And so you have that, and you think in that moment you'll never forget it. It's so clear that like, oh my God, this is, this is beautiful. I'm going to just live from this. And then time goes on and that state of mind passes. And then you, you have the memory of the insight, but it's not necessarily um, guiding you. It's not necessarily the clarity of your heart and your mind an hour later, a day later. Um, many people report this is the disappoint, disappointing part of uh, taking drugs is that a lot of things open for you and it doesn't translate. <clears throat> and luckily this path translates into um, the ripening of those insights so that it becomes the way that you, um, you don't even have to think about it anymore. It's just the way your mind is organized. And so that takes time to kind of go through all the patterns of beliefs and all the the old contexts that you were, uh, old interpretations. And so it has to kind of trickle down through that and become a new belief. a new orientation, and that's the sort of ripening 
of wisdom. I liken this transition to um, uh, another aspect of, an older aspect of my own life when I was a physicist in college. And just looking at scientific revolutions, there'd be a moment where someone, like when Galileo looked through the telescope, before he did that, it was just conjecture, trying to understand how these lights moved in the sky, a big light like the sun and the moon, little lights like the plants and stars. And people would would have theories, try to figure it out. Um, But there was an underlying misconception that the earth had to be uh, stable. It was so much bigger than the dot in the sky that the earth was big, the dots were little, and they moved around us. So that was the context uh, for a long time in human thought. And then when Galileo looks through the telescope, he has this flash of insight that the moon, when he looked at it through the telescope, um, was a planet, much like the earth. I mean, it was large, we call it a moon, but it was large and it had textures. And in that moment, what rippled through his mind was uh, this vija, this vajra, this insight. And once you have that insight into the nature of things, into the truth of things, it can't be undone. Once you see clearly into something that's true, the very truth of what you're seeing supports it. So you don't have to necessarily fall away from it. You've seen something clearly. And it's simple with uh, physical reality. Like again, the planets going around the sun and the earth going around the sun. From that point forward, all the ways that you interact with uh, studying the planets and looking at it and thinking about it, the very truth of the nature of the solar system supports your understanding once you've connected to the actual truth. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. In that story of Galileo with the telescope, the telescope is a bit like samadhi. It's a bit like the concentrated mind, the gathered mind. It allows you to see clearly something that was confusing before because it's stable and it's clear, more stable and more clear than it's been in the past. And because of that, you can have a a deeper understanding arise wherever your mind is landing because it's stable and clear due to the concentration or the samadhi that you're experiencing. And so the profound thing about being on a long retreat like this is that we have these underlying tendencies of wandering mind and craving and clinging and all the bad news. But you give yourself this level of uh, stability of circumstances supporting your practice and your mind does collect and your mind does settle. And in that settling, whatever passes through your heart, whatever passes through your mind, it's ripe for these insights. And there are personal insights where you understand how your mind works and there's insights around the forgiveness or understanding around your family or the way society works. Um, So your mind steadies, it gets clearer, these uh, beautiful heart qualities start to integrate with them, the Brahma Viharas, metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And they all begin to kind of um, blend together and stabilize and then at the right time, when things are all balanced, 
you'll have an opening, you'll have an understanding that feels more full and more clear, ripening you. And you may not even know it's coming. Seconds before it happens, you might feel like you're watching your breath and da-da-da and going through your day. And then something happens, and in that moment, something transforms. And you have a big understanding and heart opening around forgiveness or gratitude or understanding the Four Noble Truths. Um, There's room for that. And then it seems clear as day. And then the conditions shift and the samadhi wobbles and the mindfulness wobbles. And then you can't hold that clarity, but because you've seen it, that one seeing does begin to uh, impact you. So luckily you don't need to cling on to it. The very insight um, arises in you and then it begins a maturing process. My um, teacher, Steve Armstrong, <clears throat> had an analogy that um, when you plant a seed and it's growing, there comes a magical moment where most um, vegetables will produce a flower. And so you know they're happy and healthy and the fruit of the tomato or the eggplant is going to come because you see that these flowers are forming. And at some point, when the conditions are right, the flower opens and they're beautiful and they're, they're fragrant. And this flower opens um, and then the flower begins to fade. And if you're just looking at the surface of it, you think, where's the flower going? Is the plant dying? What happened? It was so beautiful and so fragrant and it's now fading. But what's happened is that <clears throat> that rich moment of the flower opening allowed a germination inside when the pollen landed on the, the inside of the flower. And then that goes down and the fruit begins to form around that. And that begins to ripen. And if you were to eat the flower, it might taste good. But if you wait, slowly that moment uh, grows and the fruit develops. And maybe months later, there's actually a very nutritious fruit of a tomato or an eggplant. And so the insight is often the delighting part of really understanding something. And that's really the mind serving its flowering form. And then that flower fades, conditions change, and we worry that um, I won't remember it. I don't want to go back to the confusion I had before. I want to keep that insight. I finally was able to truly forgive my family members the way I want to. And and then I go back into ordinary mind, and I'm sleepy and I'm groggy. But because your heart tasted that level of insight, that then goes into this next process where it goes down through you, maybe deeper than you would ever know that you could ever actually track. And then sometime later, it ripens into uh, the actual fruit you can eat, which is a, a forgiving heart and mind it's much more available, it's much more stable uh, down the way. So these insights are important, but it's allowing them the chance to mature over time and being having faith and patience that allows this uh, very nutritious fruit to be ripened. And then when you start feeling the lad level of wisdom, where you can understand not just your own family system, but all family systems, it becomes much more global. And then you have wisdom that's available for you and wisdom that's available for other people. 
it tends to do that. It becomes much more universal, your insight, with the ripening of uh, wisdom. And so the, uh, the image that you could think of with uh, prajna or panya, the wisdom is the bell. And so if this were the, uh, the vajra, and I was sort of striking at ignorance, and I gave it a good whack, um, that's you know, a one-time good whack. And as that matures over time, <clears throat> you get the bell. The same movement of my arm ripples out, and you all heard that and you all can feel the resonance of that vibration. And that's really this, uh, the, the beauty and the size and the scope of wisdom is that it's a, it's a much larger integration of the insight. And that takes time, that takes time and practice. Um, Many of you know the teacher here um, named Philip, Philip Moffat, and he wrote a beautiful book, Dancing with Life. And the basis of his book um, is around these 12 insights, these 12 insights. And really the 12 insights that he's referring to in this book are three levels of insight for each of the four noble truths. So a great, Caravadan list, <laughs> you know, sort of a structured um, organization of uh, <clears throat> what we're doing here. So Sally has been carefully going through the Four Noble Truths. Each of the Four Noble Truths has a stage where you're starting to understand it. You know, hopefully uh, we can teach it in a way that we start to get it intellectually and compare that with our experience. So the first Noble Truth on Dukkha, on suffering, you hear it and you think about it compared to your own experience. That's the first insight where you say, oh, I, I'm kind of getting it. And then there comes one, yeah, I get it. I, I get what they're talking about. This makes sense. Then it takes time of your patience and steady practice to be with your breath and your feet and taste your food and bring your mind back when it wanders. Over time, you're maturing your relationship to that first noble truth. And you come into a deeper insight, an experiential insight of what suffering is or what dukkha is. And you may not even like the word suffering. By the time you understand dukkha, the word suffering doesn't actually work for you. This monk, uh, American monk, um, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, he doesn't like the word suffering. He likes the word stress. So if you read any of his... Um, his translations, he's always using stress. You know, the, the, this is the noble truth of stress, this is the origin of stress, this is the cessation of stress, and this is the path leading to the end of stress. So as he sat with this word dukkha over time, he much preferred this word stress because he's matured his relationship, his experience. It wasn't an intellectual endeavor. As he came into his own understanding of dukkha, the word stress was much more useful for him than suffering. So that's the second level. You start to uh, deepen your experience of this first noble truth. 
And then you come to the third insight. And the third insight is where it is so pervasive that there's nothing left out anymore, that you so understand experientially the nature of dukkha that it, uh, it permeates your understanding. And then it begins to support you rather than being uh, bad news that there's dukkha. It actually starts to give you joy and orientation because you're aligning with a truth. Going back to that analogy, um, when we were the center and the sun went around us, one thing that comes with that is you feel very special because you're at the center of it all. And surprisingly, it's hard to imagine that it was uh, troubling for people to let us go around the sun. We've all done that. Everybody in this room, I'm hoping you've all made that transition. <laughs> if you're not, write me a note and we'll work on it. <laughs> but that's not what the Buddha was pointing at, but my old physicist wants you to know we are going around the sun. But it doesn't bother us anymore. In fact, it delights us. It delights me that there's something that massive on fire in space and we go around it and we're in the perfect distance from it to be warmed by it. Any further, it'd be cold. Any closer, it'd be too hot. We found this, they call it the Goldilocks zone in relationship to the sun. So it's not troubling at all anymore. It's, it's fascinating. But there was a point where that was uh, troubling, that we weren't at the center. So the same is true with each of the Four Noble Truths. As you come into relationship to them, you can hear about it, but then you have to take that time and be in the oven or be um, you know, maturing. You put, you put all the ingredients in a, in a soup pot and you let it simmer. And if you want to eat it in a half an hour, it's okay, but give it two hours. Give it six hours. Eat it the next day. And all the carrots have gotten so soft and so tender and the spices have had a chance to open up. So you're in here doing your breathing and walking and bringing your mind back, very patient practice, and slowly you can feel this heart and mind begin to open and soften. And all the, the, the beauties inside begin to uh, influence each other and integrate. And it just takes time, it just does. You don't wanna, put the, you don't wanna be a microwaving yogi. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I've done that at times, and it, 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 it's not good. <laughs> so you want to be in the crock pot. You want to be here, steady heat, steady simmering heat, and let your opinions soften. Let your stances on life, let the pain that's always been there in your back slowly open and release. It's, it's a gentle and more integrated process. And that's really that, uh, the maturing of this liberating wisdom. So you can apply these three levels to all four of the Four Noble Truths. There's understanding it, which is a little bit more on the reflective, cognitive level where you're thinking about it, understanding it. Does it make sense? Matching it against your experience. The second one takes a lot of time to get familiar and intimate with dukkha. And then with uh, Guy's talk last night, he laid out for you how to mature your relationship to the second noble truth. 
he showed you this process and then you sit with it and you watch your mind go into six times of experience at the six sense doors, Vedna arising with each experience, some reactivity or not to the Vedna, but where there is Vedna, craving, aversion, um, ignoring, that taking a further step into clinging and hatred and real numbness and confusion. And then born out of that is all of our uh, complications of, of self. We try to create a self to manage this crazy life we're in. And that actually makes the, self, that makes the suffering uh, much worse because we're really binding ourselves into a, uh, an experience of self, into an identity or into patterns that were born out of struggle with reality and building a self upon them and that self suffers. So in that talk, Guy laid this out and you can kind of think about it and maybe when you first hear it, it's kind of true, not so sure, and, and you sit with it longer and then like, oh, I get it. When he was talking about that, now I get this experience inside and I've watched it and I watched myself do that. I watched myself have reactivity and that reactivity spinning out a lot of story and the story was trying to solve the reactivity and I bought into it and I, I, I signed the contract and said, this is what I want to do so I don't have to feel that or I can get more of that. And then you're contracted to be somebody and then everything changes, but you still have the contract. It's like signing a bad contract, like a year-long rental in a house you don't want to live in. <laughs> it's just in that moment, it seemed like a good idea. In that moment, like, this will solve it. And, like, ah, and I got this contract of me. And <clears throat> you have to live it out if you don't know any better. Or the simple letting go. You're the only one holding the contract. You're the only one who signed it. You're the only one who will get lawyers on either side. <laughs> <clears throat> And you can just let go. You can just get let go of the drama and step out of it. Not that that's easy, but that's simple at least. It's not complicated to let go of the proliferation of self. So that's the second noble truth. And then coming into that completion of it where it's so deep that you stop signing these contracts on your identity. You stop trying to establish yourself. You stop trying to, um, like a little bonsai, like clipping and pruning and watering and stretching, and now you stretch bonsai, but (laughs) trying to make yourself something that finally will only have pleasant experiences or always will retract from unpleasant experiences. Finally being somebody you want to love. That whole strategy, uh, it falls away. And if your mind out of an old habit suggests it, it, it's so unappealing that uh, you stop even uh, considering it. I mean, it was, hard for me, it was hard for me to imagine that would ever happen for me, but um, it has to a large extent. And I wasn't born with like a head start. Uh, <laughs> I just put in my time, um, as you guys are doing, put in my time. Same with the third noble truth. Understanding that it can be done, knowing when it's happening, knowing when you've let go of craving and clinging, and you feel that ease, and suddenly a breath is satisfying, and you see the deer here, and they're so lovely, 
and you gaze at them and it's fulfilling. It's like, well, this is actually a free hardened mind in this moment. It can be described, that's the first insight of the Four Noble Truths. You mature your relationship to what that's like to have a free hardened mind. And then you take that to its full completion. So the craving strategies and clinging strategies don't bother you anymore. They don't come up as options. And that's the completion of understanding the third noble truth. And then you have the fourth noble truth, which is the eightfold path. And you understand it and you think about it. You begin to walk it and experiment with it. And then your life becomes the eightfold path without uh, even a tremendous amount of effort. It just sort of, that's what you do. It's good to brush your teeth, so you do it. And it's good to walk the eightfold path, so you do it. And you tend not to do the opposite. It just becomes a guiding principle, very deeply integrated with you, within you. And that's really the ripening again of wisdom, that living in accord with these four noble truths. And it takes time. It takes time to do that deep um, readjustment to how we have been living, which is usually partially um, aligned with the Four Noble Truths and partially not. We all have habits of craving and clinging that are still remaining, so we're not fully in alignment right now. But as you sit here and feel the outcome of what it was like to, in the far past or recent past, to have used anger on somebody and felt it felt right and I did it and I enjoyed it and now I hold a grudge and they hold a grudge but I'm not going to give my ground. So you do that and then you sit here in meditation minding your own business and that thought comes up and that feeling comes up and you feel the agitation of it. At some point you don't want that suffering and so you let go of it. And it's like, I, don't, I, I would rather be uh, happy and content than clinging here. And so you let go. We all have those habits and patterns and they're working through us as we sit here in the, the great crock pot of this Dharma hall. <laughs> and then the question came up again about... Um, about samadhi and its use for this. When the hindrances are in us, it's very difficult for uh, vijja, for this insight to arise. And usually vijja arises in us, it's more likely to arise, the insight into the way things are. When the mind is not as agitated or cloudy, when it's not as distracted, um, when it's not caught up in, in uh, countless fantasies, um, when it's not wavering or doubtful. So letting all those subside, learning how to stabilize the heart, learning how to become tender and intimate and steady with the flow of your experience. That whole practice is um, considered the practice of what's called samatha, another Pali word for you. And it's usually translated as tranquility practices. So breathing and being content with the breath, allowing your mind to be serene and tranquil, 
and still and at ease with the breath or with your feet when walking or with the simple colors that come through your eye if you're just doing gazing meditation or listening to anything, wind in the trees or crickets and finding that beautiful, serene, tranquil mind. That's a whole development that also takes time to let go of the mind and the habits that we're seeking for happiness elsewhere and finding that with steady invitations, the mind and heart settle into the present moment and find that when things balance out, everything you've ever needed are actually already here. It's actually the quality of heart and mind that is fulfilling, not the experience you're having. And you all stand a chance to know that more than most of the people who have ever walked on planet Earth. That's not the experience you're having, but it's the way you're relating to it. As you begin to notice that, that's another insight. That's another transformation that you could be deeply content, more than you ever have been, and you're just sitting here breathing. How is that possible? How could you even for a moment find sitting still and breathing more rewarding, more fulfilling than any other experience you could compare to, um, whatever that may be. So you have that experience once or twice, several times, many times, and then that begins to change your beliefs. It begins to show you the possibility. And then that develops over time into a wisdom. It begins to change your underlying beliefs about how you want to be on the planet and what's important to you. That's again, starts as an insight and over time, it becomes a belief. It becomes an orientation. It becomes a, a way you go about, it becomes second nature where you don't even have to work at it. It's just, I know this to be true, I've experienced it. And you find it here on retreat. And then strangely you find it in places where you wouldn't imagine you could find it. And um, that's the, also the beauty about being on a long retreat is that you have so much momentum coming out of this that when you go back into your, uh, your usual life, you can find yourself present and content in places you'd never have been before. When I first started doing um, long retreats, I was working in homeless shelters for teenagers. And <clears throat> they're very stressful places. Um, the kids are going through hard times, hard enough to be a teenager, let alone a homeless teenager, with some incredibly embroiled conflict with your parents. And usually the law gets involved in at some point and it's just complicated, not fun. And you still have to go to high school and you still have to figure out algebra and you're living in a teen shelter and you're um, with other people going through hard times. Um, so I was working on these and <clears throat> some incredible people, both the staff that would come, but also the teenagers would come, really beautiful beings, but in hard times. And I would come off retreats like these and before I knew any different, I would go right into work. I didn't know to give myself a little buffer. Um, <clears throat> but I began to experiment what it would it be like to treat that homeless shelter like a retreat center. Why does it have to be different? It's more stimulating in some ways, in many ways, 
but fundamentally it doesn't have to be different. And so I'd walk in and rather than armor myself up with my, my ego, and I would sort of play a role, and that was kind of buffering me from all the intensity, I would actually go in there and feel it. I would just sit there and feel the intensity. And sometimes it would just, you know, I'd sit there and just like a tear would roll down my cheek, like, it's so intense. But I wouldn't armor up, I wouldn't deflect, I wouldn't contract, just sit there and cook with them and how intense it was. So <clears throat> that's an insight, an insight into how intense it was versus being contracted, I could feel it. And as I got comfortable, being with the intensity of being in the teen retreat shelter. Teen retreat shelter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so some things began to shift. One, the, the teens could tell I wasn't playing a role. I wasn't just, uh, you, know, you know, kind of a shut down adult protecting myself and processing them through their experience. But I was actually feeling it along with them and to a huge degree to where I would, my, my heart would be pounding and I just would feel the stress they were in. And then they would go from being a rebellious teen to suddenly like, oh my God, there's actually a safe adult in the room. I'm not alone here. You are starting to comprehend what I'm going through. I can't even get it. But like when I sit next to you, I feel like there's somebody next to me. And I haven't had an adult like that in months or years. And then they start uh, growing and unfolding and they start relaxing and then they don't have to defend themselves against me. This is where the ripening of wisdom, the ripening of the capacity to be in that situation, it's not wisdom in terms of knowledge, it's wisdom in terms of having this beautiful, open, wise, tender heart that would be willing to feel what they were going through. They open up and then I'm not fighting them, they're not fighting me, they have an ally. And we start like, what can we do? What can we do? Not like, how can I process you to the right destination? But what can we do? That's a different scenario. And so suddenly this heart becomes one of service. And the ripening of wisdom is not the ripening of like, I really know the Four Noble Truths and I have that down. The beauty and opening of the heart when it ripens, this wisdom is so infused with love and kindness and patience and courage that then as you walk through the world, this is of course you wanna live this way. And you can, and going back to some old defended or shut down strategy, it's, um, it's like, I'm going to eat a lot of Oreos and never brush my teeth. You know, why would you do that? <laughs> I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go back into confusion. I want that type of mind again that's grumpy and defended and it's, you know, it's kind of sweet for a moment, but then you have that aftertaste. But yeah, that's what I want. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this clear. Like, it's hard enough as it is to be alive, but let alone confusion. Oof, let's not go there. So you start to uh, honor it and cherish it, and then it comes around with you. I work with students, um, and we do this exercise where they text each other little mindfulness phrases right in the middle of their work. So they get this buzz. And over time, they actually can wake up right in their work or right in traffic 
And then we say, okay, what's the part of your day where you're having the least capacity to be mindful? And it's like right when I go across the Bay Bridge and it's traffic and I know I'm going to be late and I just grip the wheel and I go into these big stories. And it's like, okay, I'm going to text you right then. And the phone, and they look over and they breathe right there. And that's the Dharma. And that moment can either be stressful or it can be their own awakening moment right in the very middle of their life. The insight is the first time it happens, the first understanding that something is possible. And over time, that matures. Over time, that develops and becomes a guiding principle. Not because you're holding on to the insight and rehearsing it. That's interesting to do that, write it down and really reflect upon it. But just sitting here over these many days, being willing to uh, develop this um, tranquility and calm to some greater degree on the one hand, and then use that to deepen your intimacy and understanding right in the stream of your heart and mind to see the Four Noble Truths. What is stressful? What is suffering? What is dukkha? Where does it come from? What's generating it? Is there a, uh, an interrupting mechanism? Can I release this? Can I stop this? Is there a way I could practice? Is there a way I could cultivate myself so that this craving and clinging doesn't arise so I don't have to struggle with it? Right in the middle of your heart, right in the middle of your body, right in the middle of your own mind, you're uh, spending time letting that mature, letting that develop. The, um, the Buddha, when he was talking about tranquility and insight, samatha and vipassana, the word vipassana, the vi, that vi is the same vi as vija. So vipassana, if you like Pali, or just endure this if you don't. <laughs> the, the VI is that clarity. It's sort of, do you wear glasses or not? I can see you all and I could probably identify you, but I put on the glasses and I'm like, oh, it's really crisp. So the VI is the crisping of your mind. It really sees clearly. Pasana is seeing. That's the Pali word for seeing. So vipassana is the, the clear seeing. So insight's actually good because it has the word sight in it. It's insight, being insightful. For an English word, it's good. So that's vipassana. You're uh, stabilizing your mind, letting it be intimate, letting it be connected to your experience, and then you begin to see clearly what's happening moment by moment. The ja, the J-J-A, <clears throat> is close to um, the Indo-European root of knowledge. So uh, gnosis um, uh, in other forms, that G, that J-A, or at least that sound, is a, a type of knowing. So there's clear seeing and clear knowing. Vipassana, clear seeing, leads to clear knowing. Clear knowing leads to the development and integration of wisdom as a guiding uh, a guiding orientation to how you walk through life. 
the largest articulation of the wisdom the Buddha wanted us to understand is the Four Noble Truths, which is why Sally's going very carefully through it. And then we're all going into pieces of it. James is helping us, uh, has been helping us explore that, the, the beautiful parts of the heart and mind, so we don't just clearly see all the, the complications and sufferings and clingings, but we actually begin to clearly see the beauty. And then it becomes clear knowing when that beauty is first felt and then it integrates. <clears throat> and then it deepens and deepens and deepens until it integrates. And when it is deep and integrated, it becomes panya, prajna in Sanskrit. It becomes this, uh, this liberative wisdom. And it's just, a, it's just a little sad about English because when we say wisdom, again, we can kind of think it's, it's a body of knowledge that you've learned to master. And it's so much more the blending of uh, faith and understanding and capacity and tranquility that has you uh, deepen into your relationship to what's happening. And then <clears throat> as you need to respond, you're guided by experience and patience and all these beautiful factors that sort of weaves them all together and helps guide you. And that's really the role of Panya. The Eightfold Path is often broken into three parts. There's the virtue or ethics part, sila, the meditative piece, samadhi, that has the mindfulness and wise effort and concentration aspect. And the third part of it is panya. And it's the combination of having the right understanding and then the right approaches to the moment you're in. How do you approach it with love and kindness, the ability to let go so that you're intimate and releasing and kind. <clears throat> That's this category of panya on the Eightfold Path. And I, again, Sally will probably go through that in more detail. The Buddha, um, as you know, was very fond of lists. And there's a whole section of the Pali Canon. It's just his lists. And there's two of these and five of these and seven of those. And so in his groupings of four, <clears throat> he was talking, um, on the path, there are four times. There's a time for hearing the Dhamma. There's a time for talking about the Dhamma. There's a time for tranquility. And there's a time for insight. So if you had to break it down into four, he says, there's a time for hearing for listening, for taking in the Dhamma. There's a time for talking about it, where you're thinking about it, reflecting upon it, speaking about it, trying to understand it. There's a time for tranquility, and the tranquility here is related very much to samadhi. It's the type of well-being and stillness that happens as the mind becomes collected and stable. And the fourth time is a time for insight. And the time for insight, once you've developed that stability of heart and mind, that ability to be intimate, no matter what the Vedana, no matter what the experience, no matter what the sense door, you find yourself intimate with the flow of those experiences. And then you look and see if the Four Noble Truths make sense in this situation. How does the first noble truth relate to this moment? Well, 
I am having a struggling mind and there is something difficult, okay? And right there I see the first noble truth that there's something difficult, the second noble truth that there's a craving and clinging going on. I was able to release it and that did bring ease. Oh, there's a third noble truth. I wasn't able to release it. Oh, you're learning the power of the second noble truth. And then later on I did release it and that's when the third noble truth came in. So you're using the intimacy of your heart and mind and then without forcing it through that contact of seeing the elements of the Four Noble Truths in your direct experience. You mature in that and then these insights arise and develop and then begin to permeate your understanding and then they're sort of ever-present. It's sort of like uh, the English I'm speaking now it fundamentally is vibrations. But you don't actually have to work that hard. In fact, you probably couldn't stop interpreting it and understanding it. It's so integrated that as in I speak, you, you, you couldn't stop, if your ears are working, hearing these English words. But there was a time when that wasn't true. There was a time that you had to work at it. And there was a time that it became second nature. And the Four Noble Truths over time become a second nature as English, if it's your first or second language. If it's your second language, uh, you're probably still working at it to some degree, but more so it's become integrated than it was. It's, <clears throat> that's one of the fun parts about going to Burma. I go to Burma often and just trying to take those vibrations of language and then starting to get certain words and then realizing that over time you can learn a new language. And that's the same with the development of the Four Noble Truths. Over time, it does integrate and become second nature and then you can't stop interpreting the world through it. If it were just a belief system, that would be kind of dangerous because you couldn't stop this belief system. But luckily, what we're doing is we're coming into a relationship to our hearts and minds and learning directly from what we see, from what we experience. So it's not just a belief, the four normal truths are a belief and I believe them. Well, I don't believe them, I do believe them. It's not in the realm of belief. You've come down into the flow of your actual experience. You've been scientists in a way that have come into this laboratory of having a human heart and body and mind and done your uh, steady intimacy within that and starting to see for yourself the nature of happiness, the nature of craving and clinging, the huge uh, operation of self-construction that we're often caught in. I wanna end with um, something, again, it's kind of visual, and it's from the, the Mahayana tradition, which is interesting that we were, you know, we have a beautiful open-minded uh, holding of all these traditions, and even though um, the basis of our training here is in this Theravadan tradition, there's a, a real recognition and beauty and honoring of the Mahayana traditions here. As your wisdom develops, 
And as it becomes second nature, as it becomes um, uh, in, deeply integrated into how you move about the world, <clears throat> when it is fully developed, that's one of the ways you could say that there's enlightenment. There's fully enlightened second nature um, wisdom that's guiding you so that no longer do clinging and craving arise and dominate you. Um, that full development of wisdom, panya, that becomes prajna, <coughs> was developed. And the way people um, tried to hold that is they made a statue of it. It becomes a personification. So we have a personification of the Buddha up here. And for a long time they didn't. A long time they didn't want to be um, enthralled with the physical Buddha. They wanted to be taken into his teachings. So, but over time it's just helpful, you know, the way our minds work to have a physical re representation of the Buddha. The same happened with uh, deep and perfect wisdom. Deep and perfect wisdom represented by the Four Noble Truths. And it turns out that this, this statue over here it's the goddess, uh, Prajna Paramita. And she has the word Prajna, which is Panya, developed. And Paramita means to perfection. So she is the personification of the perfection of wisdom. <clears throat> the interesting thing about the Buddha is that he started out like us, you know, partly awake and practiced and then went to his full awakening. So we can identify with his story Prajnaparamita, this perfection of wisdom, uh, is considered the, the mother of all of our awakenings. All of your insights and the maturing of that into their full completion. If you had to personify that process, you would have Prajnaparamita, the goddess over here, which is why she has an equal standing as the Buddha on our altar. You'll notice that she has a lotus in all of her pictures. She has a lotus growing up over her shoulder. The lotus is often a symbol of the enlightened heart or mind. And she's uh, usually doing something with her fingers like this, and that's often teaching, like she's going through lists or whenever you see this mudra, it's often one of teaching. So <clears throat> it's a wisdom with her hands, it's the growing of the enlightenment over her shoulder. And so she, that's what she stands for on this altar, the perfection of wisdom. Maybe the last thing I'll say <clears throat> is that this word vija that we've been talking about, insight, it has an opposite, and that's called avija. You put the A in front of it and it sort of gives it the opposite. So avija. And as Guy said last night, avija is actually the source of dependent origination. Not seeing clearly. This not seeing is where the whole drama of the second noble truth, the cause of our suffering, comes from not seeing clearly. Sometimes that not seeing is subtle, and sometimes that not seeing is uh, very dense and complicated. You all have the light version of it. I, I know from the people I've met to be sitting here on retreat, even want to come to a retreat like this, you luckily have the light version. So the A in front of your vija is small. 
<clears throat> as the, it's just a silly thing, but as the A gets smaller, what's left over is Vija, this, the clear seeing. <laughs> and so the, the intensity of dependent origination weakens as you weaken Avija, as you develop Vija, as you clearly see the patterns that, that uh, follow forth, that tumble forth out of avija lead to our craving and clinging and confusion and selfing and then all of our suffering. And as the a, uh, the a gets smaller and more of what you have is vija, you have a liberating uh, condition. Um, they call it uh, transcendent dependent origination. How our full liberation arises because we see clearly and so it's no small thing to see clearly in the middle of your own mind stream a moment of craving and how that led to clinging and how that generated a whole self story in a drama and that there was a release of that. In that moment, you have beautiful vija, a beautiful seeing in your own heart and mind, not from texts, not intellectually reflected upon, but in the middle of your own experience, you can begin to see these patterns. That seeing of it is the, is the thread that unravels the whole sweater of suffering. Craving does lead to suffering, but it's the not seeing that, is, that leads to the craving. And so by seeing clearly what's happening moment by moment, you can unravel this, this very powerful um, condition of dependent origination that keeps us suffering and keeps us lost life after life, day after day. So just putting on the glasses, just seeing clearly a stream of your own experience, you're defeating the very root cause of all your suffering. It doesn't seem like that because it takes time to mature. So I'm giving you uh, faith in that. And from my own experience, it's not because I've read it in books. It's because I kept unraveling my suffering patterns by seeing them clearly and they lost their strength. And what was left over was not avija, but vija. And the arising of vija or insight is what develops into wisdom. So let's again let that uh, settle within us there's a time for hearing the Dharma and a time for reflecting and discussing. And letting yourself find a posture where your body is at ease. And taking a few deep breaths and finding your own relationship, your own way back down into your heart and your body. Inviting the mind to be simple and happy and content. And I would invite you to be fascinated, to see, to enjoy the process 
of watching how your mind goes from moment to moment. And there's just as much insight about the process of getting lost as the process of becoming free. So uh, enjoy that, understand it, become intimate with these patterns in your own heart and mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.